if you take interior cabin sensors and like the technology Affectiva was working on years ago where they measure like your skin temperature and like look at like parts of your face and they try to infer emotion. If you combine that with the vehicle exterior panel color change option, as well as other BMWs like kind of avatar exterior projection idea with the windows. Are um, you pitching a mood ring and for cars? it's exactly it's an automotive automotive mood projector system hello and welcome to the autonicast as always i'm alex roy the founder of the human driving association uh, the producer of apex of secret race across america and formerly the director of special operations at argo ai which will not come up on this episode and I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Kirsten Gorosek, transportation editor at TechCrunch. So <laughs> we, <laughs> we, uh, we're all um, recovering because, as has happened for the last decade, um, which is scary to think about, uh, we were all in Vegas for CES, which is how we kick off our year each year. Um, and a lot happened that we want to talk about. But first of all, we had a party, the Atonicast party, and it was a great success. Yeah, for the first time since the pandemic. Like this is, yeah. Exactly. It Some was, say uh, it's the most important event in mobility and the most exclusive event at CES. Some say people flew in for the event and then left because it was all we needed to do at CES. Some true story. I talked to a few people who did that. Some say that uh, uh, a founder even bought, like, uh, got a suite for the night just so that uh, he could get into the party. Some right, say because- just, <laughs> some say one of the most important founders in the world, someone who received Motor Trend's software defined vehicle, uh, an innovator of the year trophy, could not get in. Uh, to clarify, in that case, they would have gotten in. It just they didn't want to wait in the security line. So uh, all these things happened and more. Uh, but because it was an off-record event, we won't be talking about it on the show, except for to say that there was a lot of really amazing, interesting people there. And I was happy to report that I was only pitched two times, which it's important to note that this party isn't just about talking shop and networking. It's about like hey, y'all, let's talk about other things than your startup. Um, and I think that that, that that mission was accomplished and good times were had by all. Can we also, the, something didn't happen uh, and it's my fault. Uh, we had so many, we, I think we had something like uh, 200 extra people try to get into the party. And as a result, I had to leave the party and talk to the fire and police departments, which I guess I'm kind of proud of. It's more parties should 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 be like that. Um, and as a result, I did not get to to thank our sponsors inside the event. So we should thank them now. Um, yes. Trucks VC, which is Riley Brennan's fund. Um, you know, he's the big brother of Tonic Cast and our friend um, Luminar Lidar. Thank you very much. Waymo, obviously. Uh, Steer Technologies. Uh, did I miss anyone? And Woven Planet. Woven Planet, of course, our longtime friend of the Tonic Cast and our CS party. All right. Could you please give us the recap, my friends, because I spent the next five days in, in bed sick. <laughs> yeah. Alex had such an amazing time that then he, as he left, said he was putting himself to bed and we didn't see him again. Some, the some, say, some say he wove a silken uh, cocoon around himself made out of his own scarves and uh, 
and has since transformed into a butterfly. These are just rumors, though. Uh, we we can neither confirm nor nor deny them. But yeah, Alex unfortunately um, missed out on a bunch of really cool stuff. And I think for for me at least, the moment that like I wish Alex Roy had been there the most for uh, Kirsten was when you and I uh, went out to the uh, to the motor raceway um, for for what was a really cool event, which. I, I feel like has not really been. I've been looking on social media. I haven't seen a lot of posts or content about it, and and it was such a cool event. Um, and unfortunately, it was a very visual event, um, so it's going to be a little hard to describe it properly. But Kirsten, why don't you why don't you kick this off and, and tell folks about what we saw out at the racetrack? Okay, so first of all, in true Ed fashion, you've gone completely flipped the order that we were going to talk about these things, but that's okay. I'm not going to judge. I'm just going to move on. Um, the Indy Autonomous Challenge uh, was held actually on a Saturday, um, but on a and which is uh, numerous college teams competing, and you're taking basically the base of like a Delara vehicle, and instead of a human in there, it's sensors compute, and they all have the same sensors and compute, and they compete on algorithms. Um, and they've had a couple of these races. Uh, they were at the Las Vegas Speedway last year. This year they competed again, and I believe the team from Milan won. But the night before, we were bust out there. Some media, um, I think Luminar, you know, Luminar people were there. Some other people were there, and they outlined one of those vehicles in blue lights, and then shut off the lights in the um, racetrack. And then the vehicle didn't go as fast as it probably would have gone. It would, I was told about eighty miles an hour. Um, self-drove around the racetrack, numerous laps. And the idea was to show, you know, because of the sensors and compute um, and algorithms, it's able to achieve what is very difficult. But to really kind of hammer the point home right before that, Ed and I and a handful of other media got a chance to get into the human driving version of this. Um, We were not driving. We were passengers Mm -hmm. Uh, but still um, donning our um, fireproof suits, um, which, by the way, I learned absolutely not built uh, designed for women because it was like <laughs> gigantic in some spots and not so much in the others. Um, uh, helmets signed our lives away and jumped in and had a thrilling um, lap around Las Vegas Speedway at about 180 miles an hour. So, which was amazing. Um, I, to be truthful, did not want to go to this event because I was so exhausted from other CES things and that woke me up. And so it was totally worth it. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the, that's the CES experience though, is, is just being so tired. You don't want to do anything, but go home and, and crawl into your hotel room and, and die. But then, you know, you get invited to something and so you have to keep going uh, and you have a great time. And yeah, I'd never been, uh, I've never been in a, IndyCar before <laughs> it was like a very. I also had no idea that we were actually gonna that 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 part was gonna happen. That was a complete surprise. Kirsten just was like, "Get down here right now! You're gonna be on the track." And I was like, "Okay, <laughs> get down there." And they're like, "Put this put this suit on. You're you're getting in that car." And uh, really intense experience. And um, but I think it was it was really it was great to to get a sense of of what it feels like to go around um uh, uh, an IndyCar. Uh, circuit in, in a car like that. But then to see the car operating with the lights off, um, was again, it was like just a very like beautiful, had these blue lights on it. Um, and I think it was just like a very, uh, a cool way to show that, um, you know, it, you know, the, the technology, a lot of times AV technology gets, it's framed as being, 
you know, better than humans in every way. And I think that that's been one of the sources of a lot of the sort of disappointment around the technology is that, you know, it's still building towards its full potential. But fundamentally, when you have these, these perception modes, you know, you can do things that, that humans can't. And it might not be the most important thing. Lapping a, a, a track in the dark is not in, a, in and of itself a, a, a super important task, but it, it shows that the, the potential of this technology in, in a really cool, interesting way. So Alex, I was really bummed that you weren't there. There is something totally relevant about a race car going around a track at high speed using LIDAR and no lights. You know, when people talk about um, ODDs, uh, operational design domains, and the difficulty of deploying in a city and deploying a robotaxi network, you know, a key pickup and drop location in any city is an airport. And the other one is downtown or the cluster of hotels. Uh, how they're connected determines whether or not an AV company can get there sooner or later. If you've got to take a highway, if those speeds are high, you need awesome long-range sensors that work at speed. Uh, And if you don't have that, you can't deploy in that city until you do. And if that system can't work in four seasons, you can't deploy in that city until you do. And so this is a a really interesting and important demonstration. Kirsten, were you the one who said... um, that this demonstration was what RoboRace wanted to do or wanted to be? Yes. So, you know, it's interesting. We've seen like the the more hobbyist event um, from Josh, our friend Joshua Schachter, the self-racing car event. And then there was the promise of RoboRace. And I've always thought that these types of things really should involve, like this is the use case for academia because it's great research. It's an amazing student project. Um it has already led to at least one spinoff company. Um, and so this particular indie um, autonomous challenge. So I've always thought that like really getting research universities involved makes a lot of sense, just like with DARPA. Um, so this seems to have achieved, I think what robo race has always kind of been pushing, but in a more academic focus research university driven way, um, which makes a lot of sense. There's teams, um, a bunch of teams actually, a bunch of universities will come together to form one team sometimes. Um, and and I just think that you've seen it kind of start so, sort of small. I wasn't sure how it was going to really go, but has really grown into something that is much bigger. And actually, very interestingly, um, this year they're going to go to um, Monza and they're going to um, do some exhibitions there but in 2024 actually race which will be you know of course it's a road course not no longer an oval um so i think that'll be a really interesting um test of you know what what these teams can do um so race on sunday robo taxi on monday (laughs) something like that uh, but we did see other things at CES besides the India Autonomous Challenge. Um, I'm wondering, Alex, you weren't actually able to walk the floor ever, as you. I, so on Wednesday, on Wednesday, I had three secret meetings on the show floor before it officially opened, and so I did get a sense of who was there. And you know, for years, I met, uh, I was I've been going to car shows I mean, my whole life, and this was the first time I actually I felt like. Ah, a trade show that combines technology and cars in a meaningful way. Because car shows have not effectively shown the future of of, tech, of mobility technology. But this, the CES has kind of become like the car show of the future that matters. Yeah, I feel like we keep talking about how it's the car show every year. But this year really hammered it home. 
Um, particularly because I was in Eureka Park, which is one of my favorite places where there's thousands of startups. It can be a little overwhelming. And even within um, some of these um, tiny little booths focused on, let's say, energy storage or something else, a little EV would pop up, a little like some smaller cars, some micromobility. Like I was just seeing it sprinkled throughout the show, not just in the major halls. Um, and you know, I think it's telling that automotive got the new West hall space. Uh, and there was overflow into North hall too, by the way. So a lot of automotive stuff, what stuck out to me the most, there's probably two or three major takeaways. And then Ed, I want to hear what you have to say. One do you remember back in like 2019 when we talked about like how desperate LIDAR companies were putting out these booths and there was like more than 70 and, you know, we talked about how they're all pivoting to ADAS. Um, people talk about AVs and companies pivoting to ADAS right now in 2023. This was happening three or four years ago and we talked about it in the Atomicast. I thought for sure we would have seen more consolidation, but for whatever reason, all these LIDAR companies are doubling down because I saw even more LIDAR companies with bigger booths than I've ever seen before, like everywhere. Um, and my takeaway is all of these companies can't possibly survive. <laughs> like they cannot survive all of them. There's not enough customers, right? Like Funny story there, there was, so there was consolidation. This, um, so Velodyne is now sort of, I guess they technically right. merged with Ouster. Right. And that's a funny story because the very first year, and if you go back into the Atonicast archives, you can hear, we did a, a two hour, I think, interview with Dave and Marta Hall, who were the founders of Velodyne and, and, and Dave Hall, really the creator of modern sort of the, uh, the automotive, uh, uh, LIDAR sort of concept, the spinning LIDAR, um, and and this was in 2018, and they were you know Velodyne had this massive booth, and you know partnered with Ford and all this you know, and and I think that same year, either that year or the year after, um, I I want to say the three of us, maybe Josh Harting was there, um, we were wandering Eureka Park, and or maybe it was just me and Josh, and and I met the founder of well, Ouster. I was standing, yeah, were no, there? we were, yeah, all, we were all there, we were all there, we were all there, yeah, um, yeah. And and it was just the two of them. It was it was Ray, it was Angus, and like you know, it was like two guys, you know, this tiny little you know desk basically down in Eureka Park. And then each year, Ouster had a bigger bigger booth. And finally, this year, Valentine has been rolled into Ouster. Ouster's still there. So so the consolidation is happening, and and it's happening in sort of you know unpredictable ways. It is, but it's not happening at the same. I guess at the pace I expected. And here's a little funny um, nugget from that era. Um, Josh Hartung, who's been on our show um, and kind of a serial founder, I guess we can call him that now. Um, he was like looking at the tech and I love walking the show floor with him because he's, uh, as an engineer, understands a lot um, that I might not. And he, I remember him saying, wow, like this is really good. Like you guys could like really compete with Velodyne. <laughs> and like fast forward like three or four years, like Ouster basically <laughs> like gobbled up Veldine, which is kind of an interesting, was interesting forecasting. I guess we should listen to Josh more often. Um, but yeah, I mean, all these, it just felt like there were some huge players there and also a lot of little ones. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I saw at least a dozen LIDAR companies on the show floor with 
and those booths are not cheap, right? So I just, I, I, I'm, I'm still forecasting more consolidation. I'm just wondering what is taking so long. Like we've seen companies like Quantergy kind of like, you know, die off, but I just am wondering when we're going to see that next wave and who's going to be left standing next year. Um, so that was one takeaway. The other one was that um, for all the talk about like this shift away from autonomous vehicle technology and into um, ADAS, I saw it still a ton of autonomous vehicle technology related um, displays, booths, but in a very um, different, a different vibe, uh, less hypey, less robotaxi focused, um, delivery focused and industrial and commercial application focused more level, you know, there was some levity to the, to, to that topic. Um, I thought I was going to be bombarded with like ADAS stuff and I didn't really see as much as I thought I was going to. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the reasons you may not have seen it is because I think the people, whomever like is hired by some OEMs to do the booth displays and the messaging around those things, I think that they've added an additional layer of complexity and, and, have no understanding of the technology they're actually displaying. Because I saw more conflation of the word autonomy and ADAS than I've ever seen before. Ugh. Even though they the company strategically have, may have backed away from you know level four, I think the people who are talking about it internally, the agencies, the comms people, the marketing people, I think they just have no idea. What's, and especially if there's a language barrier. Um, I, it's uh, like if you didn't know, what the difference and you were walking down these aisles, it'd be hard to really understand what the companies are selling, what's the product for next year or five years. Well, and, and I think a lot of that it is to do with, to me, the, the, the focusing much more in sort of B2B, like it, it felt like a lot of the folks, especially in autonomy and, and, and there was a really interesting, it felt like there was more, um, sort of uh, uh, work of, of bringing together, um, there's one in particular, and I'm, I'm blanking on their names, but it's it's Oxbotica and Suzuki and a bunch of other that are big booth. And it's this, they're sort of bringing oh, together uh, autonomy. Applied, applied EVs. EVs. Yeah, I think I think that's what it's called. Yeah. And and sort of building platforms, you know, bringing together all of the different components to build platforms that are both electric and 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 either autonomous or or automated, oftentimes for more sort of industrial or other kinds of non-consumer facing use cases. So it felt the the autonomy part of the show felt a lot more it felt a lot more like picks and shovels, right? And 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 B2B um focused. And I think that's good. I think part a big part, as we've discussed so much on this show, like a big part of this overhype around AVs and, and, and these problems really came out of the fact that, you know, the, the messaging was, was really focused at, you know, at consumers or sort of the general public and, and really the technology for, for fully autonomous vehicles, you know, it, it's much more relevant to, you know, logistics and warehouses and, and mining and, and, and farming and those sorts of things in the, in the near term than it is to consumers. And so I think that's a really natural progression for me. Did you two, either of you attend this BMW ID presentation or did you see the car um well saw the car but that was unveiling was uh when our party started so no i had someone else covering that um <laughs> and uh so i was not there at the keynote it's a good but, looking car yeah, though BMW, yeah i mean BMW the design technology, which i think is kind of interesting and i i bmw continues to sort of like push the idea of like the in-car, you know, cabin experience. I saw that a lot on the show floor, which makes sense. 
also so much more AR and VR in the vehicle than ever before. Um, Holoride being one of the companies that was offering, you know, VR in the, in the car. So it's interesting to see the um, sort of expansion of that, like turning the car into this entertainment, you know, place, especially um, for EVs, because you may be sitting waiting for charging and automakers are continuing to like kind of pitch that idea. I, you know, I, I totally buy the vehicle exterior color shifting panel concept. I would love people to change car colors. Um, but obviously because if you want to drive cross country quickly, it's optimal to be able to change car colors <laughs> on command. Uh, and I looked at this technology like 20 years ago and it wasn't really baked at the time. Uh, the, what I don't buy is that interior VR is going to be a thing anytime soon. I could see AR in, in some scenarios, but there's like a fundamental disconnect between like the average length of a ride and like what who the like the customer is. If you're going on a road trip, you have kids in the back of the car. You can see by the proliferation of screens in the back of, of, of vehicles for kids what what customers want. But the majority of rides are commuter rides, and these rides are, I think on the average is like 22 minutes long. So you need content which is less than 22 minutes, and that is specifically tailored to an AR VR experience. That content. Uh, I mean, it exists, in, in, but there isn't like <laughs> I don't think I don't think that the pipeline of content creation into AR VR car interiors is there yet. I don't think it's going to be there for ten years. Ten years is a bit of a stretch. I mean, I think that so Holoride is an interesting case because it was always like integrated within a very specific vehicle model, and it was the very specific Audi models. But they um, unveiled a product, a retrofit kind of kit um, at CES that can go in any vehicle. And as their test vehicle that they were giving demos in, they used a 1967 Cadillac DeVille to, you know, again, to like illustrate the point that could be any vehicle. And basically, it's this little device that suction cups on your windshield. It has GPS accelerometer. and, And the whole idea is that the, the catalog of VR content matches up with the driving. And I've tested, I didn't test this one. We had someone else do that, but um, I've tested their products before. I think their biggest limitation is the library, as you mentioned, but I do see a use case for it. I don't know how many families are going to invest in this to be able to have their kids on in like VR goggles, you know, for road trip, it makes a lot of sense for the commuter part. Like you said, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I suppose it depends on where you live. Commuting for some or dropping kids off to school or picking them up for some families is a much longer, like if you're in LA or something. So they have their catalogs limited, but it's mostly games and like some baby Einstein stuff. And I think that if they can then, you know, work out some deals where they're streaming movies and stuff or short, short kids pro- programming, that could be interesting. I don't think it's going to take 10 years. I just think it's a very niche market in which some people will, you know, play with this, but not all. 
So I, I have a, a question that's going to probably sound really naive because I've like barely ever used VR before. Um, uh, but like, it, it, are you limited, like the kinds of content and, and things that you can do with VR? Are you limited if you're stuck seated, like with the seatbelt on? Like, cause I know, you know, a lot of, I know one of the popular use cases for VR is sort of like exercise type games and like, you know, kind of more active type of things. I know there are multiple kinds of content. I'm just, Alex, do you have a, a sense of like, you know, how much, how much content, like, like does content have to be tailored to people who are going to be su- stuck in a car or, or stuck seated rather than be able to move around? Well, you can't get out of the seat. You can't get out of your seat, right? Like they're not going to well, put. Yeah. But, but you can, like, I've, played, I've played games. There's a hilariously bad picture of me um, doing this, but I could play like games where I'm shooting asteroids and flying through space. And I've got a game controller and the headset and I'm in the back of the vehicle and I'm waving my arms around and stuff, but I'm not like punching things. I'm not like sword, you know, fighting. I'm not going to like hit the driver in the back of the head. I've got a game controller, right? Um, the, the big thing, the most important thing is that it's matched to the movement of the vehicle. So you're, I, I am not incredibly sensitive to, to VR, but I, if I do it long enough and if, if there's some latency or lag, I will get nauseous and I didn't in these. So it's come a long way. Uh, and I think it's interesting how automakers are thinking about entertainment in the vehicle. But I do think uh, Alex is right, is that it's going to be a while. I just don't think it's going to be a decade. I think it'll be a little bit of a shorter time frame than that. Maybe I should have clarified 10 years for it to be like you both good and ubiquitous. Oh, not hard to make it great, but at scale right. and with all the different like verticals and sub verticals of product market fit, <laughs> it's going to be a while. But I can tell you what I would want. There's, and this is like a broader issue than like vehicles in general. You know, my daughter's four. She is, you know, I'm trying to reduce her screen time. I see all kinds of like psychological issues around on days when she has a lot of screen time. And I see a lot more creativity and like intellectual independence and dynamism on days when she forgets that she has an iPad. And on a road trip, I would prefer to have her engage with what's happened outside, happening outside the car than be completely disassociated from like the human experience um, by immersing herself in a VR experience. And, you know, there was a, the Blue Man Group, uh, something like 17 or 20 years ago, uh, was uh, an investor in a startup called The Ride in New York City. Uh, I was a very small LP in, in that in that company. And, and what The Ride did was it sent a bus through New York City with passengers who would observe on – there was a glass screen on the side of the bus, which could project different images inside and outside the vehicle. On the outside, was advertising. On the inside, it was um, – potentially uh, events, weather, characters. And from time to time, the bus would pull alongside an intersection. There'd be actors pre-positioned on the street. And so it was a combination of VR and AR uh, with a narrative plot in midtown Manhattan. It was a great idea. Uh, the ride didn't, I mean, it still exists today, but not to the, not to the full manifestation of what the technology might have done. But the ride was fascinating because one of the things they were th- that would have been possible would be to drive through an area and through a combination of AR and VR, do education about history of, say, New York City architecture. And so if I, to, for me, the full manifestation of AR and VR would be when they converge in a truly meaningful way with a game or edutainment, say, I'm on a road trip with my daughter, we're driving through, I'm going to say, 
northern France. So we're driving through Normandy, meaning it's not children appropriate. And you could see, like on the if you're on a three-hour drive, you could see the event, historical events of the place you're driving through through a combination of AR and VR. And and so geolocated dynamic tailored content that's edutainment is like the unlock for me as a parent. And I think the unlock for a whole new vertical of entertainment that just has never existed before. And we, we, you see a little bit of it in like museum walkthroughs, but they're usually timed. They're not, the content is not like geolocation based. Anyway, that was a long rant about how I'm optimistic for AR and VR, but almost most of what I've seen up till now was, was trash. And, and I don't, there are some people thinking about it, and there are obviously some people at Holleride who are thinking about it. But most of it, most people talking about it, no clue. I did see more AR and VR just across the board than I have in the past. And I have, I mean, it, there's always been VR around, but it hasn't, um, you know, talking to my other coworkers, it seems like the headsets have improved, like the content's improved. You know, I don't know if this is their moment, you know, um, but it, it's it's improved enough that I think that you're seeing more uptake um, and use of it, particularly around working out um, and things like that. So, you know, and jury's out on whether VR is going to be like, I, I think it'll always be a niche product, product in a car. I think AR, as you said, is going to be really where, um, particularly around navigation through, you know, through like the head up display, like how that information is communicated, I think it will continue to seem greater um, saturation in the market. But based on what I saw in terms of improvements in VR, I think that people will start, you know, adopting that more. I'm going to, I'm going to just say this to, to wrap up this, this part of the conversation. Um, I wrote a piece a long time ago, I think 2015 ish or something like that. That was just sort of essentially arguing that like the car is never going to replace the phone as the primary platform, you know, of, of how people inter- interact with the digital world while they're on the go. Cause at the time there was a lot of effort to try and say, you know, cars can be sort of like another smartphone. And it just, I just never really bought that vision. I will say though, unless there, there, there is a really good way. And again, I'm, I'm not that up on, on VR technology and, and and how it all sort of works. But like my understanding is that it's hard to, you can't just hook up a VR headset to your phone at this juncture. It needs more power than that. Um, and, and assuming that's the case, I, I see actually it's a cool opportunity for cars because right. They've been, they've been looking for a way to, to kind of compete as a, as a platform. And I think that a car does offer the opportunity in the backseat to, to have sort of, you know, offer VR content on the go in a way that you're not going to be able to do just with your phone alone. So I, I see the auto industry continuing to push this, whether or not people take it up or not is, is a whole other question, but I think the auto industry is going to push it because it gives them an opportunity to have a platform uh, that offers unique kinds of content and engagement that, that you can't get your, from your phone. And I think that's something that the auto industry has been looking for for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, um, to move on to other topics, but related this whole idea of automakers clearly seeking ways to generate revenue. I mean, that's, they're not doing this just to like be provide a cool product and have people become, continue to be loyal to the brand, although that matters. They're also looking for ways, new ways to generate revenue beyond the, you know, building, selling and financing of the vehicle. And Stellantis had like a pretty big CES this year and one of the stories I wrote about, which I thought was very interesting, is, um, and it didn't get a lot of coverage. Uh, they created a new business unit called, um, it's a terrible name, Mobility Sites, which I don't, whatever. But 
it is essentially looking to um, take all that data that is generated from the vehicle sensors or any other like app running on the vehicle and turn it into more services like insurance and other things. Um, and you know, this isn't necessarily a new idea, but now this is like, I pretty much now I think every major automaker has created a data unit. And so it is going to then continue to push all this entertainment stuff because they just want to capture even more data and provide more services and probably have subscriptions to it. So it'll be interesting to see what like Stellantis does with this um, and every other automaker that's doing it. We're seeing GM, you know, they just released their insurance product like a year ago or so. So again, leveraging the data from OnStar to, you know, provide these services. So I think this is like something we're going to see more in 2023. What did you think about the Afila car? I mean, we've seen it before, right? That's the Sony Honda. We Because Sony first showed its it's the, the concept version of this, what, like three years ago, four years ago at CES? The Vision S. Not four years ago. Yeah. A few years ago. Um, yeah. I mean, I, it, let's Didn't see you what like happens. the original Vision S better? Let's just see what happens with this brand, you know? Um, why, I mean, I, why can't Honda, why can't Honda just bring the E to the U S like that would, that I, would do the for I me. would love to see the E here. And, um, I mean, Hey, if Fiat is going to, or Stellantis is going to bring the Fiat 500 E to the, to North America, certainly Honda can bring the E here. Um, I think there's a use case for urban, small urban cars that are EVs. Like I, I wish there were more vehicles um, out there that were smaller for urban use cases, or actually what I saw on the show floor, interestingly enough, were um, small EVs for off-roading use cases. So um, there was kind of an interesting company, uh, and one of the products was called the Desert Beaver, which is a great name. And it was a a kind of like little off-roading kind of Met, legal on road up to 25 miles an hour, right? Um, so it could be used in like, you know, let's say golf communities and, you know, you can, you could, um, you know, you're not putting this on the freeway, but really it's meant for like off-roading. So people who have land and who have farms, but could also put it on road that hunters, like I'm starting to see those types of products coming out and I saw them on the CES floor and I thought that was kind of interesting because it is starting to get away a little bit from giant truck EV or giant SUV EV, you know, push. We still saw that on the floor, of course, the Ram, but I'm starting to see a lot of smaller vehicles. Well, and I have another startup idea, um, and I know we're not going to get into deeply today about driver monitoring systems and interior cabin sensors. However, looking at the BMW ID and these all these vehicles you're describing, Kirsten. Wait, BMW? You mean the v, VW? No, no. There's the BMW ID concept. Oh, yeah, yeah. IDE. E-E-E, and yeah. It, you know, if you and, and this is going to be a quick aside, then I'm done. Okay. If you take interior cabin sensors and like the technology Affectiva was working on years ago where they measure like your skin temperature and like look at like parts of your face and they try to infer emotion. If you combine that with the vehicle exterior panel color change option as well as other BMWs like kind of avatar exterior projection idea with the windows, um, 
Are you and pitching a mood ring for cars? Yeah, it's exactly it's an automotive <laughs> automotive mood okay. projector system. Okay. So uh, because autonomous vehicle developers have always been like you know always get accused of be unable to infer intent for pedestrians crossing the street and and therefore you know vehicle decision making based on what the pedestrians are going to do. Well, if the vehicles would just project the emo- on the exterior of the car the emotion of the driver. <laughs> then i'm gonna tell you if i saw a bmw in nearby that was flashing red with (laughs) anger and because the owner is that kind of person i I would i would stay away from them i would it it would say me safer Um, get up to their blood pressure monitoring and i'm done i'm gonna mute my i'm gonna mute myself could you guys please move on and explain to me (laughs) actually alex you jumped you you honed into an interesting idea though that we saw like Harmon had a health, like a health, was pitching this health um, screening sort of in cabin sensor. We've seen that from Mercedes in previous CESs. So I think if you're seeing the trajectory of Apple, which is, you know, especially with Apple Watch, like monitoring everything about your body and giving you all this data and information, which by the way, they also have, um, I think we're going to see. Uh, car companies try to do the exact same thing. And we're already seeing that. So uh, is it a huge leap to say then it like projects your mood on the car? Yeah, but you know, someone will probably end up doing it. And mentioning like mood, mood lighting at least and, and urban mobility. I mean, we can't not talk about the loop. I mean, I finally got to witness the, the Tesla's in tunnels concept and oh my God, uh, <laughs> and I expect you to hate it even without being in it. But what is amazing to me is that every person on LinkedIn at the show who, who wrote it made fun of it. But every every person on Instagram who wrote it loved it, Yeah, which suggests that you have two very different audiences were writing it. Tell us about it, Ed and Kirsten. You you have an audience of people. Well, I, I, Ed has the most. Ed has the most to say. I have nothing to say except for this. <laughs> Sometimes, Alex, Ned, we can equate the value based on how Instagrammable it is. And in this case, the neon alone makes it so Instagrammable that it has almost a limitless value. The end. Go ahead. I mean, I think we've learned something about human psychology recently, and that is if you put gamer lights on something, people on Instagram will think it's the future. Uh, (laughs) And look, like, like... Okay, so so to be fair, as fair as possible, I mean, it worked. Like the system technically worked. Like I did see like giant lines build up and then, but then disappear pretty quickly. It it, it was super chaotic. But like I used it a couple times and I got to where I was going faster than I would have if I'd walked. But like it was also just total chaos. And like so incredibly labor intensive. This was this was the thing that really hit me. It was like. Elon Musk saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to build a a factory that that's so automated, there's no humans in it. And then they end up like with the most labor intensive, you know, production system ever in a tent. You know, this is the same deal where like the vision of Hyperloop was this like automated, you know, vacuum tunnel, whatever. And it's literally just cars in a tunnel with, and so, so each car has its own driver, but then each place where you load in and like on and, and, and off the vehicles has to have an attendant as well. Plus, they have like floaters just making sure people don't because there's no barriers that prevent. They, they also have floaters. They also have floaters on top at the entrance. Like, yeah. right. Like when you like there are people 
there's the if the if the goal and the mission was to be like job creator, yeah, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. It's it's basically yeah, it's a jobs program. I mean, there's got to be at least like probably about fifty workers per station, and even then, and again, like you know, all these people are just like running around or, or just like very intensely working the whole time. And even then it's, it's super, super chaotic. So it, it's, it's not like the experience is that terrible. You're in a Tesla in a tunnel, like it's fine. It, it, it sort of works, but like also, you know, the boring company only operates this, uh, they, they've been paid to operate it through, I think like June of this year and the operating costs, right? Right. The whole point was that it was so cheap to build, but the operating costs have to be insanely high. So it's really the opposite of most public transit systems. Most public transit systems, you you pay a lot upfront to dig tunnels and build a subway or whatever. And then once you have those rails in place and everything, it's just super, super cheap to operate. This is the opposite. And, uh, you know, maybe we can like learn a lesson that we probably should have learned in the 19th century, but Hey, let's learn it now. Why not? You know, uh, you know, let me go, let no, me go say ahead. one thing and then Alex, and then we should move on. We don't want to talk about the future of transportation and focus on the loop because it's definitely not the future. You know, Las Vegas to me has become like the test bed for like <laughs> random mobility ideas and in a city in which, like, are there sidewalks in many places? Absolutely. Are vehicles going by you at 100 miles an hour while you walk on that sidewalk? Yes. Is everything impossible to get to as a pedestrian? Yes. Will you possibly get hit by a car in a crosswalk? 100%. It is. Uh, and, and Ed, I think you covered a lot of this. I haven't read um, the whole article yet um, that you just had published today in Jalopnik, which is really cool. But it is the like least pedestrian friendly city. And yet you have people walking around everywhere to get to all these places. Like certainly this wasn't the answer. And yet here we are the end. I'm done. Alex. I, I, I would say, you know, it, <laughs> there is um, a wonderful, um, it is wonderful to go from one end of the convention center to the other. Um, in a vehicle in a tunnel. It's, it, I mean, there is, there's something there. I mean, there are people who like it, whether it's a business, uh, <laughs> I'm not buying that. Uh, the, it is funny that people who work in tech and like tech, um, tech investors, Tesla fans don't seem to have a understanding of like the history of mobility technologies. Just these don't seem to understand it. Cause if you do, then you can disassociate the two things. I love using the loop. The loop may not be a great business done. Let me tell you my favorite, because we're almost out of time, my favorite, I made one of the most consequential announcements at CES. I think it was Mercedes announcing that they're going to open their own charging network. Because after Tesla, the only other company that has stated as much has been Rivian with their adventure charging network. But for an OEM to announce a a charging network, a branded network to solve the uptime and reliability problem that so far, it appears no other network has solved, is a big deal. This is like, imagine if in 1925, um, or imagine in, if in 1915, Ford had opened the first gas station network, and then 10 years passed, and then someone else did. That's, that's, that's how consequential this is. Uh, and also, Mercedes said the network will not be proprietary. It will be open to all. So right. you, if there's a race and, ability, and to give us. Um, let me finish this. Then it's it's a race for whether 
the non-OEM, the independent charge networks will solve the uptime reliability problem before Mercedes does. And that is, the, for me, a, a, that's a real race. So it's interesting that, you know, they're, they're partnering, they have a few partners. They, like you said, they're opening this up. It's not going to be proprietary, but they absolutely want to. And I have a kind of an analysis story coming out by Tim Stevens um, at TechCrunch this week about this. We're really talking about why the why of it. And Mercedes looks at its clientele and its customer base, just like, you know, Tesla made a decision to build its own sandbox in part because it kind of had to. Um, and a lot of people poo-pooed that. It was actually a pretty big real estate play. Um, never That never got much coverage. But, um, and, and there's parts of the supercharging network that never came to pass, like how there was going to be all these amazing convenience stores and how they're all going to be powered by solar. Um, that didn't happen. But there is something about when you talk to Tesla owners about this a loyalty to and really loving the experience of their own thing or their own branded thing. And so even though Mercedes is opening this up, they there is an important difference within your Mercedes, you can make a reservation for that charger. And if you are stuck in traffic, it will adjust the reservation for you. And so there's this luxury experience in which Mercedes customers driving freaking an EQS. I mean, this is more than a hundred thousand dollar vehicle. They don't want to roll up to some like dark ass by the way, as a woman who's driven many EVs, do you know how many dark ass parking lots I've sat in like to charge my EV in the middle of nowhere? Like many. They are creating this branded luxury experience that matches the expectations of the of the owner of that car. And it makes sense. Let's see how they execute it though. It's not just about building a bunch of chargers. The experience is going to have to be Mercedes-like. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things with Tesla is that, is that, you know, everyone sort of thought like, oh, they're showing the blueprint for like where the whole market is just going to go. Now, what they did is they, it's the blueprint for a, a premium EV business. I think you're absolutely right. I think you have to have, you know, your, your ability to prioritize charging. If you're, if you're selling people a premium EV in this day and age, you have to be able to tell them like, yes, you will have some kind of priority and you're not going to just be, you know, with the hoi polloi at a, at a EA charger, because as everyone knows, <laughs> that can be a bit of a crapshoot. So we're, we're just about out of time. Oh, go ahead, Alex. Uh, the last well, – I have a question for you too. Um, did you look at or think about the Mobileye uh, announcement on Manchushua's remarks about the SAE levels no longer being useful and then his their definition chart? Did you see that? Yeah, I think that would be worth like a whole discussion maybe at a, on, a, on a future episode. Great. Agreed. Yeah, we should have Let's, we should have Amnon. And I want to give you the floor though to close out the show because you did actually do something off CES proper that I think is worth mentioning and then maybe give your takeaway of CES in these final 3 minutes before we close the show. Yeah, well as it so happens, I I they are not unrelated. So um so yeah, as you mentioned I wrote a piece of Jalopnik um that sort of, you know, um, it's less of a trend piece and more of a vibe piece. <laughs> um, that's just sort of about how, you know, you go, you go to CS every year and it never gets easier to get around there. Like we keep seeing the future of mobility and it's, you know, everything from little micro mobility devices to autonomous vehicles and this, that, and, 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 you know, Las Vegas remains just an absolutely wretched place to get around. And I think, you know, for me, part of the evolution of, of thinking about all this is that, you know, uh, 
mobility devices are, are band-aids in some ways. And the structural problems are all around, you know, how we develop our cities and roads and, and, and sort of the more fundamental structural stuff, which, you know, is, is, is about as far from software as it gets. It's the, it's the very hardest of hardware, right? Is that infrastructure. And so, um, it, it's hard to get all hypey about, oh, we're just going to transform our infrastructure. But I think increasingly, as we think more about these technologies, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, they're all parts of systems, right? Uh, any vehicle is a part of a system. And, that relates to um, – I, I was lucky enough to be invited to um, Neuro's testing facility out by the uh, the racetrack as well, um, kind of on the edges of, of Las Vegas. And it was really impressive to see. Um, they've just got you know these Neuro delivery bots uh, rolling around, I think, you know, hours and hours at a time. They got people out there on e-bikes and, and, and old cars driving around to simulate traffic. We were able to throw obstacles in their paths and watch them you know, negotiate them and, and, and even step out in front of them and, and they give you tons of space. And anyway, um, it it was really interesting to see. And I think, you know, neuro is a a fascinating company because, you know, a, they're, they're not just building cars. Right. Um, and, and I think that's always been interesting, but also, you know, when you start to think about, you know, delivery as a luxury today, you know, but, if you think about, you know, say 20 people in a neighborhood all get in their, you know, 5,000 pound SUVs and drive to the store for a toothbrush or, you know, uh, uh, whatever, you know, some small item that we, that we, you know, make these trips for all the time. If all those trips were to be done by one little electric delivery bot, all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's, you're replacing trips, right? It's not, it's, it's, um, and, and you're replacing trips with a, a much more optimized vehicle and delivery can actually be something that, reduces the environmental impact instead of being a kind of wasteful, you know, luxury where you're, you're optimizing for speed and, and convenience rather than, than efficiency. And so that, that's really exciting because I think, you know, Las Vegas, if, if there's a lesson of being in that city, it's that, you know, I don't know if, if it will ever be an easy place to get around. And I think, you know, starting to think in terms of like, how do you reduce trips? The best trip is no trip at all. And, and something like neuro, you know, it, it showed that, that those opportunities are starting to come within reach. And I think it, you know, it was a really cool thing to see because I think, you know, going to CES and seeing these things, uh, it challenges us to be more open-minded about what might be possible in the future. And I think that we're getting to the point where a lot of these technologies are so mature that it's increasingly on consumers and retailers and and business and and government to to think creatively about how we can use these technologies in new ways and not just try and fit them into the old boxes uh, of how we've done things in the past. And so that to me was like one of the really inspiring uh, experiences at CES, along with just hanging out with you guys, my, my dear friends, and, and a bunch of other really, really cool, interesting people who we haven't seen for three years. So um, I just had an awesome time. I could blab on about it forever, but we should probably wrap this up. Well, we're cutting you off, Ed. So that's what friends, that's, thank you for those That's what friends words. are for. <laughs> Yep. Goodbye, Ed. Um, And thanks, Alex. But most importantly, to our audience, thanks for listening to another episode of the Atonicast.